Hello and welcome to the HRD Life podcast. This week I was joined by David Balls, Group Human Resources Director of The Rank Group. David joined me via Studio Uplink to discuss initiating real cultural change, dealing with image perceptions, the level of your people and your company, and more. Enjoy. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So first of all then, what do you see as the link between establishing a customer-centric business and cultural change within an organisation? Well, I think the key thing here is you've got to define through any culture change what it is that you want to become at the end of it. And if customer centricity is at the heart of that change, then you've got to weave it through everything that you've done or are going to do. Now, what I think is important is when you talk about um, customer centricity, when you talk about what's out there in the in the, in the stats that, that people will read, is that interestingly, 14% of organisations will say they have customer centricity at the heart of their organization. In actual fact, only 11% of customers agree. So you've got this mismatch between what actually organizations are saying around their culture being customer-centric and actually what the customer experience is. Right. And I think the issue that you get there is because a lot of what people say is customer-centricity and, and, and a desire to put customer at the heart of the culture doesn't actually manifest itself in the way the organization would like. So I think you know, my, my, my view on this is as you create a, and build a customer-centric culture is that there's almost six key areas you've got to focus on. You've got to make sure you operationalize customer empathy. So when you're talking about the customer, you've got to be able to empathize with the customer and understand anything from their perspective. You've got to be focusing on customer insight. A lot of organizations will have CRM uh, departments, customer relationship management departments, and will have insight functions within them. However, is that truly at the heart of everything that they are doing and is truly putting the customer at the heart of, of their journey and, and making sure you have the insights on those customers? Is that truly what the individuals are doing? I think you've got to facilitate direct interaction with the customer. Organizations talk about people at the front line uh, and the interactions that they have. You've got to make sure they're as solid as possible and make sure they are direct interactions. You've got to link the employee cultures we're talking about with customer outcomes. So when you're talking about customer centricity as part of your culture is that you should be rewarding individuals and through performance management tools or the whole employee life cycle, be ensuring that you're actually rewarding individuals to deliver that customer culture that you're after. Um, as I say there, you've got to tie compensation in with what the customer outcomes are that you're looking for. And then finally, you know, you've truly got to live for customer orientation. This has got to be something that individuals live and breathe, um, not something they just do as part of their day job. It's interesting, actually. Ar- around customer centricity, why do you think that some organisations kind of can't get ahead around it or struggle with it? I-, I suppose it can be quite a big shift and a big change, can't it? Do you think maybe it's, it's too big a change for some organisations or can everyone manage it? Well, I think everyone can manage it. It, it. It's like anything. It's your commitment to delivering it. And as many organizations know, what, what, what gets measured gets done. So if this is coming down from the board through your exec con with true measurement around what is expected, and as I say, even taking part of what I said there around how you build it into your culture, if you're making sure every element of the employee life cycle is attached or anchored in customer centricity, then you can make the change happen. I think it was Cotter but, you know, back in the day said 80% of change uh, programs fail um, because it doesn't have the right you know, outcomes defined. There's not enough commitment. You don't have the easy wins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And my view would be building a customer-centric culture is no different. 
But the point in there is if organisations do truly commit to this and weave through what they do on a day-to-day basis, the element of putting the customer first, living and breathing it, then I think they can achieve it. So gambling, I suppose, with industries like uh, tobacco or alcohol has often struggled with its image in, in the public eye. How have you set about to transform perceptions of rank? And how is, I suppose, how have you started that with your people? Absolutely. I, I, I think I think we've got to do more of a job than other organisations have to do because of the sector that we're in. There is a lot of negative publicity around the organisation, sorry, sector and mm-hmm. by definition the organisation at the moment uh, in terms of problem gambling, you know, underage gambling. Um, and and, and organisations like the Rank Group, we take it incredibly seriously. We don't rest on our laurels and we're, we're always trying to be on the front foot with what we do in terms of managing uh, the relationship with the customer and managing our relationship with our our own team members in terms of addressing any of these potential issues that, that might be out there. So yeah, when, when we when we look at how we build our image in a public eye, I, I think there's I think there's two things that you focus on. You talk about your your employee value proposition, uh, and I think that's important from the point of view of you know, as an organisation that like likes to excite and entertain our customers. We have to put our, our colleagues at the forefront of everything that we do. And so they have to be representative of the type of organization that we want to be. And so what we've done is we've we, we've invested in our, our colleagues, uh, for example, around uh, particular issues with problem gambling in training uh, on licensing objectives that might be out there, uh, but also on actually how to handle individuals who might have issues with gambling uh, when they call into our call center. So we've got almost what you'd class as mental health first aiders uh, within our colleagues who if a, if, a, if a customer calls through and uh, it, it displays some behaviours that might uh, suggest that they've got a problem gambling, um, we will point them in the direction of support that they could get uh, and make sure we deal with them accordingly. My observation is, you know, by no means do we turn our colleagues into counsellors. That's not what their role is. Um, and we wouldn't put that burden on them, but certainly give them the skills to uh, effectively manage and in a in a controlled and compassionate way, manage that customer and point them in the right direction is something we we allow them to do. Um, and I think certainly I say there about the employee value proposition. I just think from a broad and organisational proposition, um, actually what we display out in the marketplace is, is important. We take the lead in areas such as responsible gambling um, and take the lead in pulling training programmes together, as I say, for our colleagues, but equally going out into our communities and helping those individuals who might have an issue with problem gambling. You know, we, we, see, we clearly see this as an, as, as, as an issue. We clearly see this as something that we need to spend time addressing, as I say, both from an organisational context, but equally ensuring our, our colleagues have the skills to deal with it as well. Why did you place such emphasis on mental health in in the first place as part of this transformation? And how do you feel how do you feel this has been achieved so far? And do you think there's still a long way to go for for Rank and for many other organisations? Absolutely, I, th- I think there's a huge way to go. You know, I think if you look at mental health, it costs UK businesses between thirty three billion and forty two billion a year. And when you start to look at actually what will happen on a day-to-day basis, one in six workers will experience depression or anxiety um, or unmanageable stress at a point of time in their career. And when you start talking about those statistics in terms of the number of people that will experience it and the direct direct impact it has on business, it has got to be something that organisations manage and organisations take uh, heed of and and actually deal with. And and Rank's no different. 
in that in that context. You know, rank as an organisation needs to make sure that it it works with its colleagues um, who may be experiencing mental health issues and and gives them or points them in the direction of the support that they need. You know, I, I always think with with mental health issues is that you know a lot of the time organisations can't solve the problem, but what they can do is not make the topic a taboo is allow managers to have the skills and the ability to talk to their team members about what support they can access and then facilitate and support those colleagues in accessing the support that they clearly might need at some point in time. Um, and I think that's just the, the hallmark of a good employer. You say, why do we we emphasise it? I don't think we particularly emphasise it any more than other organisations. Um, we just put it at the heart of what we do in terms of making sure colleagues uh, have the support that they need. So speaking of putting people first, then I, I know that uh, inclusion has been very important um, for you and, uh, and for Rank. How have you gone about trying to improve the state of, of diversity and of inclusion uh, within your organisation? I, I feel like it's something that many organisations try to to match, but they can't quite get there. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think inclusion and diversity are are key topics for us. And, and interestingly, what I what I have done there is said inclusion first rather than diversity inclusion. I did that very specifically. <laughs> I think the narrative within organisations now has got to change more to creating inclusive cultures of which diversity manifests itself within, rather than saying we're just pushing for diversity and not addressing at the heart of it what is really about inclusivity. And from a rank and from a rank perspective, you know, we, we talk about our, our six pillars and one of our pillars is um, to create an environment which enables our colleagues to develop, be creative and develop exceptional service or deliver. Sorry, I should say exceptional service. So that's one of the pillars that we focus on. Um, and what we what we what what's key in there for me is making sure that we develop and allow our colleagues to be creative and deliver service. But in the in the format that they believe that should be delivered. And that is all about inclusivity, right? That is all about saying to people, be the very best that you can be of yourself in the workplace. And so how have we done that? Well, clearly, you, know, you need board and exec combined. Uh, we have we have that and we have on a regular basis our board members attending uh, events that we have uh, in a calendar of events we have over the course of the year. So even, for example, today we have one of our non-exec directors attending a, 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 a BAME roundtable, which is about ethnic diversity. And there we have individuals from across the organisation discussing how we can address uh, any any sort of minority uh, group issues within the organisation as related to BAME individuals. As a measurement, are we doing enough in terms of promoting career development? Are we doing enough in terms of recruiting, etc., etc.? So certainly having board and exec com, uh, commitment is key. Um, we've also delivered a number of interventions. So we have uh, completed unconscious bias training through the board, through the exec com and for our top 50 managers across the organisation, uh, which has been incredibly enlightening in terms of you know, what people do on a day to day basis that they're, they're just simply, as the term would suggest, unconscious of, which might have an impact on their ability to be truly inclusive. We look at a number of programs that we've got in place. We've recently implemented a high potential sponsorship program for females across the organization. And what this is about is members of the execcom sponsoring uh, key female individuals um, and, and or sorry, I should say key females, uh, sponsoring key females to help them develop their careers and help them build uh, on the success they've already had today in their careers to go into uh, larger roles and bigger roles across the organization. Uh, I, I referenced the calendar of events earlier, so we have that going on on an ongoing basis. 
We have diversity champions across the organization. Uh, and interestingly, we, we've got them working on rolling out an unconscious bias uh, um, based program at the moment to help managers, general managers across all our sites, understand more about unconscious bias and the impact it could have on them in the workplace. And then finally, we measure ourselves and benchmark ourselves. I think organizations can be very good at putting interventions in place uh, and taking a proactive approach to uh, change and to take an inclusion uh, agenda very seriously. But if they don't actually benchmark themselves and ask themselves the question of whether they are seeing success, uh, then sometimes they can be a bit futile in terms of the impact that they have. So, for example, we benchmark ourselves with the All In Diversity Project, which is a gambling specific global benchmark survey. Uh, as I say, we benchmark ourselves in that. And out of 52 companies last year, we came fourth. So I feel very, very comfortable that as an organization, we're taking the right steps in creating an inclusive and diverse environment for our colleagues. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many different initiatives there that you're, you're building out together. And I think in collaboration, they can they can affect some change. You mentioned something there about um, working with the board and, and the executives in the company and, and getting their buy-in. As a people leader, as an HR leader, how have you uh, managed that relationship with the wider with with the wider company? Because I think sometimes HR leaders can struggle a little bit to have the ear, as it were. Is 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 that something you've experienced? Then would you have any tips for for HR leaders who want to kind of affect change in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the key thing with this is organizations and senior leadership teams have always understood the moral argument for diversity and inclusion or inclusion and diversity I should say they've always they've always understood that that you know having having teams that represent the communities they serve uh, and having individuals in their senior leadership teams that uh, represent the colleagues they have across the organization is it, 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 frankly something we should be doing on a on a day-to-day basis I think, though, where the narrative has changed is there is certainly, and, and, and McKinsey uh, in particular have done a lot of work around this, have actually justified the real business case now for diversity in terms of organisational performance. Uh, top quartile organisations having a truly embedded inclusive and diversity uh, agenda, uh, inclusivity and diversity agenda. So um, when, when you start to talk to top teams, my, my key tip would be take it away from just something that is nice to do because there's a moral obligation on us to do it. Much more to actually look at the business success of organisations that we, highly, we hold in high regard and share with your colleagues the types of activity they are undertaking to become more inclusive and diverse. And I think the more you start putting it into the business case, much, much more likely are you to get the support from your colleagues around how to, to build this and, and make it part of the DNA. And I said earlier around benchmarking, I think the key, the key thing there is then is to, as you would do with any uh, business objective, is to make sure you have some clear objectives, some clear goals, some clear measures, and just keep revisiting with the board and execcom how far you've progressed against those and making sure that everyone sees it as their responsibility to hit the targets that you've put in place. Speaking of then... Uh thinking about how you can make those changes happen if a people leader is listening to this and they want to instigate this kind of wider cultural change that you've been talking about how it started from your people addressing all these different issues from mental health to the perception of gambling if 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 a people leader is listening to this and wants to instigate a cultural change in their organizations what would you tell them to do where should they start if they haven't the faintest idea 
Well, I, th- I think it's been it's being clear about what you want to achieve and having buy-in from the people who can influence that outcome uh, in terms of, you know, the, I go back to the board and exec comp, those individuals that can help you uh, define and achieve what you want to. It's very, very, very important that uh, as a people director, you've got their support and you've got their buy-in to the, the overall outcome. And then almost I'd say, look, if you're, if you're changing your culture of the organisation, if you want to make it sick, uh, stick. There's almost, uh, you know, 10 top tips that I would say, look, j- j- just keep in the front of your mind as you do this. So I'll, I'll go through the list that, 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 I, that I think are important. I think, first of all, you've got to define a set of desired values and behaviours. So that is actually articulating what you want to see in terms of your colleagues and your, your people in your organisation. What do you expect them to do and to how do you expect them to act as a result of the, the, the culture change that you're trying to create? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I'd make sure you align the culture with strategy and processes. So looking at your mission, your vision, your values, and consider how they live, live and breathe within your HR processes. And that very much will begin with where I said you need to start, which is getting the support from ExecCom on board in terms of buying, because that will help define, as I say, um, what actually is the culture, what actually is the strategy and how they interact with each other. I'd make sure I connect, I would make sure individuals as a third point, connect culture and accountability. Um, as I said earlier, you know, when you measure people and you can say truly how they have achieved and what they've delivered and what they are accountable for, you are far more, far more likely to see the change that you want to happen than you are if you just have um, nebulous concepts that people are trying to or trying to achieve and aspire to achieve. So making sure you connect culture with true accountability and making sure that individuals know what's expected of them. So having visible proponents, which is number four. And the point here is, um, as I say, is you know, it might be the CEO, it might be the board, but, but equally having just some key people around the organisation who can actually support the culture change that you want to achieve. And, and by that, I mean, you know, we have in any organisation informal networks, you know, the waterfaller moments, the individuals who really know where uh, to get, where and how to get things done. And I think having those people at the heart of your change both driving it, supporting it, and, and, and making sure others around the organisation know its importance it is absolutely key. I'd say number five, I, I define the non-negotiables. So you know, look at your current culture and call out which aspects you want to retain. Um, and making sure also then, if you talk about where you want to get to, what are the outcomes that you're looking for that are simply non-negotiable? So being clear around the organisation, around everyone who's involved in this, what you're going to retain and what you're expected to achieve over a period of time. I think at number six, I'd align the culture with the brand. Uh, I think if you get a disconnect here, then unfortunately, it's very, very hard to build the type of culture that you want. So as we talked about earlier, if you look at the rank organisation, we want to make sure that we put responsible gambling at the heart of what we do and customer centricity at the heart of what we do. So we've got to make sure our culture sits behind that in terms of delivering those ultimate outcomes. As I said before, number seven, make sure you measure it. You know, some people see culture as a sort of fuzzy, a uh, fuzzy thing, esoteric thing. You know, the, the, the point of the matter is cultures are very, very tangible and have real impact on organizations and their performance. So make sure you're measuring it. I say number eight, don't rush it. 
you know, it's, it's very easy to think that culture change can happen in six months. You know, we, we just need the exec comp to behave in a different way and then suddenly the organisation of culture will change. It's far more difficult than that. You know, culture change programmes can take years to achieve because you need to change the underlying ways of organisations behaving rather than just sort of setting top line, top line goals and, and asking people to aspire to those. Make sure you invest now at number nine. You know, don't wait. Make sure you've got the staff and resources to achieve what you want to do and make sure you start investing them now. And then finally, you know, most importantly for me, it's just making sure you, you're bold, making sure that as an organisation you are bold in what you want to achieve. And as I say, as a people director, make sure you're bold and being at the heart of the change that you are looking to implement because uh, you, you, know, you can have a very, very influential role in the success and the outcome. Wonderful, inspiring and remarkably comprehensive. <laughs> I might say, David, a wonderful set of tips. That's a fantastic note to end on, I think. Thank you so much, David, for joining us on the podcast. And I hope you can join us again very soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HRD Live podcast with David Balls, Group and Retail Human Resources Director of The Rank Group. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on hrdconnect.com via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for a new episode every week. See you next time.